if you have had children, most of us can remember our time in youth sports. When I was growing up, it was primarily uh, baseball and basketball, uh, maybe football, but not with my then slender frame. Today, we've thrown in others like soccer, volleyball, tennis, golf, track, cross-country, lacrosse, swimming, and if I have not named your sport, imagine that I have. On this Father's Day, we can remember the hours of practice with dad or perhaps mom, the hours of practice with teammates and coaches, and then those inevitable games with fans, also known as parents, filling the stands. And we can remember the words of praise, good throw, good catch, great shot, great play. We can remember the words of encouragement as proud dad and mom yelled, keep your eyes on the ball, get back on defense, swing, batter swing. My father was an avid athlete and played many sports well, but his favorite was baseball. So I played baseball for four very long years. I played because he wanted me to play. He encouraged me to play because he thought I liked it. Why would I like a sport I could not play? I suppose it's a fine sport. I was just no good. I was an okay fielder, but don't put me in the outfield because I couldn't, I had no arm and could not throw it to the infield. And I certainly could not hit the ball. In my four years of playing, no kidding, outside of t-ball, I remember actually connecting with the ball one time. Four years of futility. A line drive to the first baseman who promptly put up his glove and caught it, I suppose, to save his face. I I ran with that for quite some time, two feet to the left, and it probably would have been a double. (laughs) Well, for those four dreadful years, my dad would offer words of encouragement. Keep your eye on the ball, son. Which one? (laughs) Swing earlier. You're behind it. No kidding. Make, just make contact. I'm trying. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. My favorite was, you can do it, son. No, actually, I can't. <laughs> After four years, I decided I wanted to join the Boy Scouts. My dad said, well, son, you probably can't play baseball and join the Scouts, so you'll have to decide. With a pained look on my face, I think I even mustered up a tear. I said, well, I I guess I'll have to give up baseball, Dad. I was in the Scouts for about three months, just long enough to make tenderfoot and miss out on the baseball season. Hallelujah. What's my point? Don't make your kids play baseball. It is a lousy sport. not actually it. You can do it, son. He wanted me to. (laughs) I actually even wanted to. 
But his words of encouragement, as heartfelt as they were, did not ensure success. No matter how many encouraging words he offered, it did not change the outcome. You see, in the end, it was dependent on me to keep my eye on the ball, to swing at the right time, at the right place, wherever that was, and make that all-important yet elusive contact. For the past few months, we have been in a study of the book of Hebrews. It is a pastoral letter written to Jewish believers who were also struggling in their faith, infinitely more important than a base hit. Opposition, actually severe persecution, had arisen. As a result, some had remained spiritual infants. Others had removed themselves from the fellowship of the church. Some had taken their eye off the prize. Some were considering quitting and joining the Boy Scouts, I suppose, actually returning to Judaism. And the author writes to encourage them, you can do it. (laughs) Persevere. Remain faithful. But, But could they? Or were their efforts as fruitless as mine? And some of you, through our time in Hebrews, have maybe thought, blah, blah, blah. I know you're encouraging me, even warning me. Truth be told, I'm not sure I can do it. It feels like you're in the stands yelling meaningless words of encouragement. You can do it. But I'm struggling. I've tried to keep my eyes on the prize, but I keep failing. I've lost track of the number of times I've fallen into sin. Others, even professing Christian brothers and sisters, have sinned against me egregiously, left the church, left me. Some who made vows, took oaths oaths of commitment to Christ, to me, to remain faithful till death do us part have not. Even I've made commitments I've not kept. And this rising opposition, teachers, professors, family, friends, from across our culture, has been an avalanche of ridicule and opposition. Truth be told, I'm not weathering it well. I have thought about chucking the whole thing. I come on Sundays, but I'm not sure that I will make it. And and that warning passage we just finished, it might be me. I might be the professing Christian who who loses it, The, the, the almost Christian who walks away, the actual Christian, the actual Christian who's ready to give it up. Your warning is the only thing that has kept me here. I'm not sure I'll make it, but I'm... I'm too fearful to quit. So what do I do? How I hope that we have people like that here this morning, perhaps many of you, because I have a, because I have a word for you from God, your heavenly Father. He is offering words of encouragement to you today. 
You can do it. You will make it. How can he be so sure? Because your success is not dependent on you, but on the sure, rock-solid promise of God who does not lie. We don't hear anything else here that today. His word to you today is like an anchor in a storm-tossed sea. We have just come out of the most severe warning in the book, maybe all the New Testament, and it perhaps has caused you concern, maybe even fear. I want to remind you of the author's words to you from last week, but beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you. So he says, don't be sluggish, don't be lazy, persevere, imitate those Faithful followers around you, the ones who have, through faith and and patience, inherited the promises. How how do we know? How do we we know that that, that we will similarly make it? How do we know it's just not swing, batter, swing? Because of our text today, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 and following, having just warned us, having encouraged us, you can do it, and having just mentioned God's elusive promises, we read these words starting in Hebrews 6, verse 13. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he, that is Abraham, obtained the promise. Here's my question. Why did he obtain the promise? For men swear by one greater than themselves. And with them, an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed or confirmed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. If you have been troubled over the past couple of sermons in Hebrews, I want to put your troubled heart to rest today. Your heavenly Father from Heavenly stands offers a rock-solid anchor of strong, not just encourage, strong encouragement to you today. The outline of the text will go like this. We're going to see the example of the promise. Actually, the example of the promise inherited. And we're going to see the God of the promise, the all-important God of the promise, and then the assurance of that promise because of God. He just... He just told his readers, we're convinced of better things concerning you. And, and, and so be imitators of those examples of faith who, who inherited God's promises. For example, consider Abraham. 
And as you well know, Abraham is a key figure in the Bible. His story is covered in Genesis 12 to 25. Eight of the nine New Testament authors, yes, there are 27 books, but there are only nine authors. Eight of the nine reference him. The only one who does not is Jude. We, we know Abraham's story. He was from Ur of the Chaldeans. That's near Babylon, over a thousand miles to the east of Canaan, which, think about it, makes Abraham an Iraqi. Well, God called Abraham to, to go to a land He would show him, a land flowing with milk and honey. He, he, would, he would give him the land. Further, God would make a great nation of him with descendants as numerous as the sands of the sea, the, the stars in the sky. Not only that, through a descendant of Abraham, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And so Abraham went. He, even though Hebrews 11 tells us he didn't know where he was going. Just go west, young man. Oh, well, that's another problem. You see, what's crazier is Abraham was not young. He was an old man, and his old wife was barren, no children, actually past childbearing age. He was 75 when God made the promises to him. Any 75-year-olds in here? Think about having a kid. How in the world would God fulfill these outlandish promises? But Abraham believed God, and his faith was counted to him as righteousness. As such, he became the father of all of those who believe. We'll come back to that. He gets to Canaan, <laughs> and no child is born to him for 11 years. He waited for the fulfillment of the promises. Finally, his wife Sarah encouraged him to father a child through one of her handmaids, an Egyptian girl named Hagar. He did. And Ishmael was born when Abraham was 86 years of age. Oh, but, but there was a problem with that. Ishmael was not to be the promised seed. Sorry, Dome of the Rock. He, he was not to be the one through whom the nation would come, the, the one who, through whom the Messiah would come and bless all the nations of the world. No, 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 no. The promised seed would come through Abraham and Sarah. So wait some more, Abraham. And he did for 13 more years. A total of 25 years he waited. Finally, God remembered and fulfilled his promise and gave Abraham and Sarah a son, one, a single son. They named him Isaac. Abraham was 100. Sarah was 90. But the promise was fulfilled. Here's my question, how, why? Because God said so. That's the point. The central figure of this passage is not Abraham. The central figure in any story, in your story, is not you. It is God, and that is a good thing. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Think about that. When you are going to take an oath, you swear by something or someone greater than you, binding you to that oath. So, for example, when you were, when you were sworn into a court of law, you used to raise your right hand, place your left hand on the Bible, and swore to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you, God. That was supposed to mean something, someone infinitely greater. 
It's supposed to bind you to truth, but of course you can still lie. It's called perjury. But, but with God, <laughs> there was no one greater than He. He couldn't swear on the Bible. I mean, it was His Word. He couldn't swear by someone greater either. There was no one greater. And so He swore by Himself. <laughs> Verse 14, saying, I will surely bless you and I will multiply you. Hey, a couple of things to note about that verse. First, that passage comes, interestingly, from Genesis 22, verse 17. And the verse before it, verse 16, actually says, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. That's where the author gets this idea that God swore by himself. Now, taking oaths or swearing by another, someone greater, was a common practice then. And in the Old Testament, the strongest oath that you could take began with the words, as the Lord lives. In other words, by the name of God who lives, I swear. And this was incredibly important to the, to the Jews, to the Israelites, because one of the commandments said, don't take God's name in vain. And so you would not take His name upon your lips if you were not telling the truth, you see. We probably should not do that today. Occasionally, you will hear people say, I swear to God, or I, I, I swear by God. I would suggest if you are going to do that, you better be telling the truth, because there is no one greater by whom you can swear. Yes, I know, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount not to swear by anything. There was a lot in what He was saying there. But he says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. In other words, as Christians, it should not be necessary to swear by anything because we ought to be people of truth. This was his point. And that, and that is certainly true of God, right? I mean, his divine word ought to be enough. But in order to make his promise even more sure, he swore by himself. Verse 15 says, and so, having patiently waited, that's Abraham, he obtained the promise. How? Because God fulfilled it. You see, a second thing to note about the, that quote in verse 14, as, as it comes again, is that it comes again from Genesis 22, years after Isaac was born. When God told Abraham to take his son, his only son Isaac, the promised seed, and sacrifice him to the Lord on a nearby mountain. You remember that story. Abraham obeyed God, took his son, the wood for the altar, even the fire, but no sacrifice when Isaac, brilliant lad that he was, looked around, asked Abraham, uh, Dad, what about the animal? Abraham responded, God himself will provide and he did. As Abraham bound his own son, the son of promise, and laid him on the altar, raised the knife. God stopped him, and there was indeed a ram caught in the thicket, and Abraham sacrificed that ram. And, and in a real sense, he received his son back in fulfillment of the promise. So, so God said, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply you, Abraham. Now, the point is not to get sidetracked by that story, but to see that God promised Abraham a seed, and not only did he give Abraham a son, he spared him years later in fulfillment, in continuing fulfillment of the promise. Why? Because God promised and swore by an oath. He didn't need to swear an oath. He did it to make his promise even more sure. That should mean something to us. 
You see, this brings us to our second point. The God of the promise in verses 16 to 18. It's a bit confusing at first, but know that the author is beginning with a a little cultural lesson. You see, verse 16 is filled with legal language, for even men swear by someone greater, and in so doing, the oath is given as a sure confirmation that what is said is true, and thereby it ought to end any dispute or argument that we might have. Again, you can commit perjury, but the principle is when you take an oath, especially by the name of God, what you are supposed to be saying is true, ending our disagreement. So also, verses 17 and 18, God, desiring to show the heirs of the promise, that's interesting, desiring to show the heirs of the who's that? The unchangeableness of His purpose, that is, that what he promised, he will bring about, he confirmed it with an oath. He made a promise and then confirmed it. He didn't have to. He's God. He's a God of truth. It's in his character to be truthful. But he confirmed it with an oath, not to bind himself. There was a sense in which he was already bound because he is a God of truth. He's always truthful. But he confirmed it with an oath for the heirs of promise so that they could have absolute confidence that what God promised will take place. That's great. Who are the heirs of promise? Well, they are the heirs of Abraham. Consider Romans chapter 4. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, um, uh, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God in Genesis 15, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor or grace, but what is due? You work for your salvation or somehow able to earn it? It's payment that you're receiving. But there's a problem, you see. But the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, you see, that's why you cannot work. His faith is credited as Righteousness. Verse 9, is this blessing then on the circumcised, that is only on the Jews, or the uncircumcised, that is Gentiles also? For we say, faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness, chapter 15. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Circumcision didn't come till Genesis 17. Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised, and he received the sign of circumcision, the seal of righteousness, of of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that, here's the purpose, he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised. In other words, being Gentiles, you ought to say hallelujah. The righteousness might be credited to them. The father of circumcision and the father of... Circumcision to those who are not only of the circumcision, that is Jews, but also following the steps of faith to those who follow the steps of faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. That's you and me, Gentiles. For the promise, notice the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be the The heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. The promise is to the heirs of the promise. 
to those who believe like Abraham. And so Paul could, lay, yeah, could write in Galatians chapter 3, and if you belong to Christ Jesus, listen, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. You are the heirs of the promise. The point of all of that is the blessing of salvation comes to the heirs of Abraham. And who is that? Those who are justified, made right by faith and not by works of the law. Back to Hebrews 6. Desiring then to show us those who believe God's promises like Abraham did are heirs of the promise. Promises that God not only made, but then he swore by an oath to you making them doubly sure. His promises and purposes are unchanging. I need you to understand something. The author here is brilliantly building a case, so stay with me. You see, in this verse and the next, there are a couple of attributes, qualities, characteristics of God that give us assurance in His promises. The first attribute is what we call immutability. That is the truth that God is unchanging. You don't have to worry that God made some promises like that salvation would be by grace through faith and those who believe like Abraham, and then later God changes his mind. Well, I know I said you could be saved by grace through faith, but now I'm going to say something else, and now you, you, you've got to jump through these new hoops that I have erected. Nope, he will never do that. His character and nature and purposes and promises are unchanging. He is immutable, you see. It's an important characteristic or attribute of God. Further, verse 18 speaks of another attribute called his veracity, his truthfulness, so that by two unchangeable things, stop right there, he just said that God was unchangeable in his purpose because of his own immutability, his unchangeableness, so that by these two unchanging things, what are those two things? His promise and his oath that supported the promise, you see in which it is impossible for God to lie. Because God is a God of veracity. God is always a God of truth. When we speak, for example, of God's omnipotence, that is that God is all-powerful and He can do anything, we do understand that there are some things that God cannot do. That is not heresy. That's from the Bible. Because there are some things that would go against His nature. And he is by very nature true. And as such, it is impossible for him to lie. This does not limit God, nor does it somehow put God's law over him. He is by nature, by makeup, he is true. And so it's impossible for him to lie. Numbers 23 says it like this. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said promised and he will not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? It's for you, brothers and sisters. Do you see? Because God is altogether powerful and good and unchanging and truthful. What he has said, he will do. He will keep his promises. And you can take that to the bank. He is absolutely sure and true, unchanging, so that... We who have taken refuge, what a picture. 
We have taken refuge in the hope of Christ in an increasingly hostile world with rising persecution and rising opposition. We flee to refuge in Christ. We who have done so would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This is encouragement throughout the book. Notice it is not just encouragement strong encouragement. Take hold of the hope that you have, knowing God has promised you with an oath and he cannot lie. His promise to you is inviolable and unchangeable. So his point, persevere. Take hold. Stay faithful. More, hear your father from the stands of heaven saying, you can do it because he will not withdraw his promise to you. Do you see? This is so important. You see, when God took Abraham outside and showed him the innumerable stars in the sky and said, so will your offspring be, God, as he pointed to the stars, was pointing to you, heirs of the promise. Abraham received the promise, but we are its objects. When God promised innumerable descendants in Christ Jesus, we are those descendants. We are those who have received the blessing. Through him, all the nations of the world will be blessed. That's us. Such that Paul could say in Galatians chapter 3. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say into seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, into your seed. That is Christ. And then he goes on to talk about how salvation would come by faith in Christ and not through the works of the law. Therefore, you are all sons of God through faith, you see, in Christ Jesus. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, you see, this is the culmination. If you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's descendants and heirs, according to the promise. That is incredible. That's who you are. This brings us to our last point very quickly, the assurance of the promise, verses 19 and 20. This hope that we have as an anchor of the soul is both sure and steadfast. So the going within the Christian faith has gotten tough, has it? And, it, and it's getting tougher and challenging. Persecution then was rising and the believers were thinking of quitting. Is it worth it? What, what, what about us? Will, will we make it? And the absolutely sure answer is yes on all counts. Now, our hope is not in an uncertain tomorrow. It is not just wishful thinking. It is not the power of positive thinking. It is based on God's character and his promise and his oath. I want you to hear that. Your salvation and the assurance of, of your salvation is not in how strongly you believe, but in the character of the one you believe. And he will keep his promises to the heirs of the promise, heirs of Abraham, who by faith have believed and been justified. This is his point. He's building a rock-solid case. People, we are living in an increasingly faithless and therefore hopeless society. 
The more secular, all secular means is without God. The more without God we become, the more hopeless we become. Chasing the American dream, we become more and more empty. And as we have seen recently, material success and fame and fortune apparently does not bring hope because more and more people are attempting and succeeding in suicide. More and more people are clinically depressed and on antidepressants. Many describe themselves as, as lonely, aimless, hopeless, more so than ever before in our social media age. What the heck is wrong? We are hopeless because we have no hope. Our culture fails to give people meaning and purpose. We are living in what has been called the age of despair. The age of despair. My brothers and sisters, I want to say to you this morning, you have a rock-solid, unchanging hope It is as sure as God himself. It is an anchor for our souls. It's the only place in the New Testament that the word anchor is used metaphorically. It's actually only used in one other passage. It's in chapter 27, the shipwreck, and uh, Paul's shipwreck, and it talks about it literally there. But throughout throughout the culture at that time, an anchor was used to speak of that which is steady and sure, That's the point here. Despite the storms and challenges of life, despite the opposition and persecution that is rising and that will inevitably come, your soul has an anchor that is both sure and steadfast and will, listen to me, mark it down, will never give way. I don't know if I can hold on any longer. He'll hold you. That's the point. So in the midst of the challenges, hold on to your faithful, unchanging, powerful, truthful God and his promise. He's shouting from the stands of heaven, you can do it. You will make it. Hold on, persevere, and you will. Because his words of encouragement are effective and sure. How can I say that? Because your hope is both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil. What? What does that mean? Well, he's taking us back to the tabernacle, later the temple, and he's going to talk about that in chapters to come. But we remember, we've talked about this recently, the most holy place or the holy of holies was beyond a veil, a thick curtain. It was a place in which God dwelt above the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. And that veil kept people separated from his holy presence, only the high priests once a year can make atonement for the sins of the people and, by the way, his own sins. But our high priest has entered beyond that veil and opened the way for us. That high priest, his name is Jesus, and he has gone as a forerunner. That means he's leading others there. Our access to God is secure through the finished work of Christ. The ang- listen, listen. The anchor of our hope is attached to the unfailing, unchanging character of God held fast by, the, by Christ's own nail-pierced hand. He 
It's not going anywhere. Now we know what it means when we sing. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil to the very presence of God. His oath, his oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. Finally, that high priest Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, which brings us full circle back to chapter 5, verse 10. Remember, he wanted to talk about that Melchizedekian priesthood, but his readers were too immature for a chapter. So he shamed them. He graciously warned them severely and then encouraged them with hope. And now he says, it's okay. So now let's move on. And we will. By the way, I've told you this author is brilliant, building layer upon layer of biblical truth, intertwining them in amazing ways. Remember Melchizedek is mentioned in Genesis chapter 14 after Abraham returned from rescuing Lot. And then he disappears for like a thousand years until Psalm 110, a messianic psalm quoted more in the New Testament than any other psalm. And in in verse 4, we read, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Does that sound familiar? He's tying all this together. The promise included the unchangeable truth that the Messiah, the Lord, is sitting at the Father's right hand until all of his enemies will be made his footstool. That's the beginning of uh, uh, chapter 110. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, and then he disappears for another thousand years until Hebrews 5, 6, and 7, where we find because God's promises are sure and steady and unchangeable that Jesus is forever a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, just like he said, because he doesn't forget. Because he doesn't forget his promise to his son, He doesn't forget his promise to the heirs of the promise. Sure. So, do you think God is trustworthy? Do you think you can trust his promises? Do you think that you can remain faithful to him despite the trials and challenges of the Christian faith? I trust so. My brothers and sisters, he will keep his promises to you. He will hold you fast with an anchor of your soul and you can do it. You will do it. You will make it. Listen, because he who began the good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Let's stand for prayer. Father, there is so much truth, layer upon layer of truth in that text. We could spend, I don't know, the rest of our lives in it. But its core truth is that you are a faithful, unchanging, truthful God who made promises to the heirs of the promise. That is to us, and you will keep them. 
And that truth becomes the anchor of our souls in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of the storms of life, in the midst of the challenges of life. We hold on knowing that you hold on to us. You are altogether good and altogether glorious. And we thank you in Jesus' name.